I'm Kathy with a K. And I'm Kathy with a C. And this is season two of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Charlottesville, Virginia. Colloquially known as Seaville, the city was established in 1762 and named after the United Kingdom's Queen Charlotte, the wife of King George III. Charlottesville was the home of two U.S. presidents, our third president, Thomas Jefferson, and our fifth president, James Monroe. Our fourth president, James Madison, lived just 26 miles northeast of the city. In 1819, 10 years after leaving office, Thomas Jefferson founded the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. The land for the university was purchased from former President James Monroe, and all three of the former presidents from the area served on its first governing board of visitors. All of the primary campus buildings were designed by Jefferson. And in 1987, the University of Virginia and Thomas Jefferson's home Monticello were recognized as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Monticello is the only private home and the University of Virginia is the only university World Heritage Site in the United States to be recognized internationally. Today, visitors go to the Charlottesville area for hiking, ballooning, and world-class entertainment. Its downtown mall is one of the longest outdoor pedestrian malls in the nation, with stores, restaurants, theaters, and civic attractions. The city is also a gateway to Shenandoah National Park, which offers recreational activities, scenic mountains, and hiking trails. With a college-age population, it's no surprise that Charlottesville is home to 10 breweries. And in 2014, one tragic event reminded students that drinking with friends carries certain responsibilities. This includes protecting those who consume too much and insisting on a buddy system. Failing to live up to these responsibilities can have deadly results. In 2014, 18-year-old Hannah Graham was a sophomore at the University of Virginia. She was a smart, well-liked student athlete at 5'11", who competed in ski racing for the university. Hannah made friends easily and was always happy and kept herself busy with many extracurricular activities. At about 7 p.m. on Friday, September 12, 2014, Hannah met up with some of her friends and fellow ski team members to hang out and get ready to go out for the night. Hannah pre-gamed with her friends before going out to Fig Bistro and Bar for a ski team function. After leaving Fig around 11 p.m., she went to a party at an apartment near the school. Hannah left shortly after getting there, and after connecting with a friend from high school, the two went to another party they knew about and met up with some other friends. They were all having fun and kept drinking as the night went on. Around midnight, Hannah was pretty intoxicated and said that she wasn't feeling well and wanted to go home. One of her friends walked her outside, where Hannah turned down her friend's offer to walk her home. She left on her own and this was the last time she was seen alive by her friends. Throughout the night, Hannah had been communicating with various friends by text, and as the night wore on, her text messages became increasingly difficult to understand and were filled with misspellings consistent with an increasing level of intoxication. In the last text messages that she sent, she indicated that she was lost and referenced two streets in Charlottesville, and then moments later referenced another street near the downtown mall. The last communication from her phone was a text sent to a friend at 1 a.m. early Saturday morning stating, I got stuck down though. 
And Kath, I have no idea if any of her friends knew what she meant. Or maybe it was just part of the intoxication, and so it wasn't supposed to make sense to them. Did you read anything as to whether or not her friends were texting her back? I did not read that. Neither did I. But that is a question that I have in my brain. What is happening with her friends as she is communicating to them? On Sunday, September 14th, Hannah's friends reported her missing after no one had seen or heard from her since late Friday night. Hannah had plans to volunteer early on Saturday morning and did not arrive or respond to multiple attempts to contact her. This was out of character for Hannah. Her total lack of contact with friends, family, or others known to Hannah was highly unusual, and that prompted her family to go straight to the police. Immediately, Charlottesville police began searching for Hannah. The FBI, the Virginia Department of Emergency Management, and K-19 teens soon joined the search efforts, and the case received extensive local, national, and international attention. Through their extensive investigation, police discovered video surveillance footage and heard eyewitness accounts that helped them piece together what happened to Hannah after she was last seen by her friends. Kath, it turns out that at around 12.45 a.m., so this is late Friday night, early Saturday morning, Hannah was spotted at a place called McGrady's Irish Pub. This is also in Charlottesville. A video from a camera on top of the building showed Hannah wearing a gold crop top and black pants. The bouncer working the door that night told investigators that he noticed Hannah because, well, first of all, she's 5'11 and very pretty, but he said she walked by him once, turned around, and then walked past him again. The bouncer told police that when she walked past him the second time, he saw that Hannah was pretty drunk, so he asked her if she was okay or if she needed his help. Hannah replied that she was okay and didn't need help, and then just walked away. From there, video surveillance showed that she started walking in the direction of the downtown mall. Footage from a local Shell gas station showed her breaking into a short jog as she passed beneath a railway bridge. She was probably freaked out. That would be terrifying. I had that same exact thought. That's so dangerous. Although I wouldn't have been walking by myself in the first place because I just would have been scared of all of it. (laughs) (laughs) She was next seen in footage walking past a supermarket, an apartment complex, and a restaurant, continuing the same route towards the mall. In all of this video footage, Kath, Hannah appeared to be unable to walk in a straight line. Two days after Hannah was reported missing, a state police helicopter flew over the route she was last seen taking late Friday night and early Saturday morning. The police also set up a tip line and calls had already started pouring in. That same day, Hannah's family, her parents John and Susan, and her brother James released a statement through the University of Virginia that said they were heartbroken but remained hopeful that Hannah would be found. The next day, Police revealed that they had received two new videos from the route Hannah had taken the night she disappeared. Minutes after she jogged under the railway bridge, surveillance footage showed a white male going in the same direction walk past Hannah. He glanced over his shoulder to look at her again, then stepped into a doorway and stopped. That is so scary. That is very terrifying. A few minutes later, as she was seen walking past the doorway, the man stepped out and began following her. In the second new video, which was filmed just two minutes later, Hannah looked like she was walking with somebody, and you can't tell if the person is male or female, but you could see the same white male following close behind. Detectives continued to reach out to local merchants that had surveillance cameras on their buildings. And although the city uses surveillance cameras, 
They were never installed in any of the downtown mall areas. Kath, I had read somewhere that that was because the city council didn't want to ruin the aesthetics of the area. I can understand that, actually. Like, I mean, I'm a little conflicted, so I get that. I agree. I mean, conflicted until something like this happens, and then, of course, you want it, but then once it's over, you're like, okay, take them down now. Yeah, totally. Police also asked landowners and landlords near the mall to search their property for any signs of Hannah. Five days after Hannah vanished, investigators spoke with the white male seen walking behind Hannah on surveillance footage early Saturday morning. And Kath, I believe he actually came forward and contacted the police, but I'm not sure why I believe this, because when I went back to look, I couldn't find anything that said something one way or the other. Well, we like to make up things anyway. I know, (laughs) but we at least admit it. So here you go. It actually makes sense since this case was so publicized. It does. Now, according to an article in the Daily Progress by Dean Seal, the man told police he was following Hannah because she looked to be physically distressed and he wanted to make sure she safely got to wherever she was going. This witness told police as he was following her, a second man walked up and put his arm around Hannah. This witness described the man as being black in his late 20s or early 30s, around 5 foot 11, weighing between 250 and 285 pounds. Later that day, UVA police issued a statement warning the university community. The statement said that the weekend Hannah disappeared, two UVA students were believed to have been sexually assaulted near the route Hannah Graham was last seen. At that point, the assaults had not been connected to Hannah. And Kath, listen to this. One week after Hannah disappeared, almost a thousand volunteers gathered at the John Paul Jones Arena on the university's campus to take part in a community search effort. These volunteers were broken into groups that were led by people who were experienced in search and rescue, and they fanned out across a 14 square mile area. That's incredible, but it also speaks to the fact that when you're in college, you know people. You know, like you're on a team, you're in a sorority, like a friend of a friend of a friend, like you know a bunch of people, and so people are going to be willing to come out and help search for you. And a lot of these members were from the community as well. Right. This is so terrifying. And I don't know anyone who can't relate to this kind of story. A guy. Well, yeah, that's true, I suppose. But I mean... They don't. They don't get it. No, they don't feel fear for their safety. Well, that's like, exactly like it. They don't do. get it. But don't you think most of them would have the sense to like, well, shoot, no. I don't know, not allow a woman to walk home by herself? I don't think so. But honestly, how many of us haven't been overly intoxicated or had friends overly intoxicated. Back in the day, two-for-one Long Island iced teas at Barwinkles on Thursday night. Holy crap. My favorite place was Goat Hill Tavern. Oh, yeah, the goat. 50-cent lemon drops and dollar Long Islands. It was just intended to F you up. Oh, totally. Yeah. It was absolutely how it was. And it's like we all had friends, and sometimes perhaps that was us who just got a little crazy. But it's usually the women looking after the women. It's not usually the men who are doing it unless asked. I don't know. I know that I had a friend who I used to have to babysit on a consistent basis, and it was your sister. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I was babysitting. No, wait, she's the older sister. Never mind. (laughs) No, but like seriously, at Barwinkles, like I had this one friend who would get Baracho y Loco, and she would just... Is that how she got, or is that the name of a drink? Well, Baracho y Loco is drunk and crazy. Oh, (laughs) You know Spanish. Yes, un poquito. (laughs) She would start meandering off with somebody. And it was like I had my shepherd's hook and I'd reel her back in. Like, no, you don't, Missy. It's a scary thing. But it's something that my mother never discussed with me. 
But my mother discussed with you. Yeah, but I discussed with my daughters. Leave no soldier behind. It's, it's a, a real different thing. generation. Absolutely. Yes. And I do think people are more aware. The same day as the search, Charlottesville police revealed that they had searched the home and car of a man who was seen in a downtown restaurant with Hannah shortly before her last text message saying she was lost. This was about an hour after she left her friends. The man purchased drinks for both of them and they left together about 15 minutes later. They were seen walking to his car, a burnt orange two-door Chrysler, then driving away. Police Chief Timothy Longo would not name the man, but did say he was black, 32 years old, 6 foot 2, and about 270 pounds. Chief Longo confirmed that they searched the man's residence, but refused to call him a suspect. Instead, the chief said that they were interested in learning more about his interactions with Hannah. And Kath, I'll tell you, in researching this case, I don't know if you had the same thought, but when the male who was following Hannah and the other person first talked to the chief and said, oh, it was this tall, heavy black man who was there putting his arm around her. I fully thought he was lying and trying to cover up for himself doing something nefarious. Totally. Until I saw this in the records. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. But at the same time, whatever happened to that guy? Why did he stop following them? Did they get into the car together? I don't know. I think that the police know. I think it's just unreported what happened. You know, I mean, obviously, yeah. everybody's following the story. All the reporters are following the story so closely. And once the guy who was following her was no longer a major player, I think that the reporters just turned and now went after the new major player. Yeah, I get it. But I still have unanswered questions. I'll make sure they're aware of that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see what I can do for you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the video that showed Hannah and this man getting into a burnt orange Chrysler provided probable cause for the police to obtain a search warrant for the car, which the chief said yielded some evidence, although he wouldn't say what. He said that evidence led to an additional search warrant for the man's residence. I gotta say, how many burnt orange two-door Chryslers do you think are actually in this college town? Probably a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Chief Longo also told the press conference that in addition to getting the search warrant for the man's car and residence, they had two additional witnesses who came forward to tell police what they had seen the night Hannah went missing. They were able to verify video footage that showed Hannah walking toward the downtown mall. They were actually there in person and saw the same thing. These two witnesses told investigators they saw when the tall black man walked up to Hannah and put his arm around her. In fact, Kath, one of these witnesses was female, and she told investigators that when she saw this man go up to Hannah, she said to him, you don't even know her. And he replied to her, hush. Wow. The only reason I know one was female is because in the court record, it actually said when she saw the man. So I don't know if both are female. I don't know if one is male and one is female. I just know for sure one is female. So these same two witnesses, because of what they just saw, followed Hannah and the man to the Tempo Bar, because that's where they wound up, and sat next to them at the bar. This black man bought two drinks, one for himself and one for Hannah, which police were able to confirm with credit card receipts. The two witnesses saw Hannah and the man walk out the bar together, arm in arm. As Hannah and the man walked down the street, a third eyewitness said he saw Hannah begin walking ahead of the man as if to separate herself from him. He watched as the man caught up to Hannah and placed his arm around her. This witness said the man did not look friendly when he did this, but saw the man then take Hannah and walk her to his car, a burnt orange two-door Chrysler. 
The next day, the name of the man whose car and residence had been searched was made public when Charlottesville police issued misdemeanor arrest warrants for Jesse L. Matthew Jr. During a news conference, Chief Longo said that police wanted to interview Matthew and he went to the police station on Saturday with family members. Matthew asked for and spoke with an attorney, leaving about an hour later. After leaving the station, Matthew went to his grandmother's house. Chief Longo said that state and federal authorities who had been overtly monitoring his movements saw him drive through Albemarle County at a speed and in a manner that was reckless and placed others in danger, so much so that they had to disengage for their protection and the protection of other people. So basically, Kath, what this means is that they engaged in a high-speed chase and some supervisor told the officers, stop which is the worst thing you can do to a cop who wants to get in a chase. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Anyway, the chief said they were now aggressively pursuing Matthew and would arrest him when he was found. Two days later, police still had not found Matthew. Albemarle County investigators were in his apartment Monday morning and left with three parcels, but did not divulge what was in them. Matthew's landlord spoke with reporter Kay Burnell Evans from the Daily Progress and said a couple who had been living with Matthew moved out and his pit bull popcorn was missing. The landlord said she spoke with Matthew a few days prior to discuss bills he needed to pay, saying he did not keep track of things very well. She also revealed that Matthew was employed as a patient technician in the operating room at the University of Virginia Medical Center where he worked for two years. I know it's alleged and he's presumed innocent until proven guilty, but it scares me how normal a job that is if, in fact, he's guilty of doing this. I agree 100%. On Tuesday, September 23rd, 10 days after Hannah's family reported her missing to police, Jesse Leroy Matthew Jr. was charged with abduction with intent to defile in the case of Hannah Graham. He was still at large after police had to stop following him when Matthew began driving recklessly. At his now daily press conference, Chief Longo would not give additional details on what led police to charge Matthew, simply saying that they had gathered sufficient probable cause to obtain an arrest warrant. The next day, Matthew was arrested in Galveston, Texas, nearly 1,300 miles from Charlottesville, Virginia. The Galveston County Sheriff's Department received a call about a suspicious person on the beach, and when a deputy responded, they discovered Matthew alone with a tent set up next to the car. And Kath, by the way, the police still had his burnt orange two-door Chrysler. This car actually belonged to his sister. The deputy ran the car's license plate and found that it matched one that had been circulated across the country by federal authorities. Matthew did not fight extradition and was returned to Virginia. On Saturday, October 18th, 2014, five weeks after Hannah Graham disappeared, Charlottesville police announced in a late afternoon news conference that they'd notified Hannah's parents that human skeletal remains were discovered at an abandoned property about 12 miles from Charlottesville in the southwest corner of the county. Authorities made a tentative identification based on articles of clothing and personal possessions linked to Hannah. Her crop top and jeans were found near where the majority of the skeletal remains were located, and her watch was also found nearby. However, Hannah's underwear, shoes, and cell phone were never recovered. Chief Longo said a Chesterfield County Sheriff's Office search team found the body just before noon. Despite the tentative ID, authorities cautioned that the identity of the body was not yet conclusive. However, 
They then canceled searches that had been scheduled for that day and thanked the Virginia Department of Emergency Management for its efforts. I think they kind of gave it away. Yeah, exactly. One week later, the state medical examiner's office positively identified the remains as Hannah Graham's. The medical examiner, Dr. Kevin Whaley, concluded that her cause of death was homicidal violence of an undetermined cause. However, due to the absence of significant skeletal trauma, Dr. Whaley opined that most likely the specific cause of death was either strangulation or suffocation. Hannah's parents said in a statement, We are devastated by the loss of our beautiful daughter, Hannah. Over recent weeks, Hannah has been described by those who know her as bright, witty, thoughtful, loyal, and fun to be around. She was all those things and more. Although we have lost our precious Hannah, the light she radiated can never be extinguished. We will hold it in our hearts forever, and it will help sustain us as we face a painful future without her. Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither, (laughs) despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone, and so do you. As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. After Jesse Matthew Jr. was arrested, authorities discovered a significant break in another case that had haunted the city of Charlottesville for five years. According to an article in the Richmond Times-Dispatch by Frank Green, Matthew's arrest provided what was described as a forensic link to the murder of 20-year-old Morgan Harrington, who disappeared in 2009. Her remains were recovered in a hayfield in Albemarle County three months later, just a few miles from where Hannah's remains were found. Morgan was a 20-year-old student at Virginia Tech and on October 17, 2009, attended a Metallica concert at the John Paul Jones Arena on the UVA campus. She went to the concert with a group of friends and although they took Morgan's car, she didn't drive. She was pre-gaming in the car on the way, so when they got to the concert, the friend who drove kept the keys. I think all of us have pre-gamed like we talked about it in actually episode number one about going and sitting in the parking lot prior to us apparently knowing about tailgates. Oh, yeah, exactly. But I've never had my car used if I wasn't the one driving it. You know, like you want somebody oh. else to take responsibility for oh, the night. I'm totally like, here's my car keys. Would you drive? Well, as somebody who started driving at 15, <laughs> thanks to that exactly. attitude. <laughs> I had a lot of trust in other people. Thank you very much. <laughs> you actually would give me the keys before you'd give them to your brother. Exactly. <laughs> But yeah, pre-gaming in a car was a real thing. And the fact that her friend kept her keys, when I initially read about this, I thought, oh, that was a safety measure. Oh, yeah. At about 8.30 that night, 
Morgan left the concert to go use the bathroom. When she had not returned 20 minutes later, a friend called her cell. Morgan answered and told her friend that she was outside of the arena and cannot get back in, so she would just get a ride home. Now, I have no idea why that happened or how that happened. Do you? No, honestly, my guess is she probably stumbled out of the arena looking for the bathroom and didn't have a ticket with her or something like that. I figured the same thing. Or she could have been thrown out, but I didn't see anything that made me think that. Yeah. People who saw Morgan at the concert said she looked like she'd had too much to drink and had an abrasion on her chin after falling on the concrete floor of the arena concourse area. And man, that will ring your bell. That sounds like ouchiwawa. (laughs) (laughs) You're just full of the Spanish today, aren't you? (laughs) Morgan's friends also knew she didn't have any cash because she'd given her money to one of her friends to buy concert souvenirs. She was last seen alone and hitchhiking. She was wearing a black skirt, long black leggings, black boots, and a Swarovski chain necklace. She was also wearing a black t-shirt with the band Pantera on it, which I got to tell you, Kathy, I think it's hysterical that she would wear one rock band's t-shirt to another rock band's concert. This t-shirt had been given to her by a friend, and the shirt had a unique design. The next morning, a UVA lacrosse player found a purse next to a fence at the Lanigan Track parking lot, which was across the street from the arena. In the purse was Morgan's student ID, driver's license, and a debit card. There was also a small flask in which she'd put the alcohol she was drinking on the way to the concert. An employee with the private security company that had been hired for the event told investigators that on the night of the concert, a lot of taxicab drivers, particularly those from a company called Access Taxi, used the Lanigan Track lot as a staging area that night. Over the next two days, Morgan's cell phone and cell phone cover were found across campus in a parking lot. Three weeks after Morgan disappeared, Charlottesville police were called to a property where a black Pantera t-shirt, believed to be Morgan's, had been found. It was sent to the Virginia Department of Forensic Science, which analyzed human hair that was found on the shirt. It was a match to the mitochondrial DNA of her father's maternal side of the family. On the same t-shirt, they also found a blood stain from which they recovered DNA that did not belong to Morgan. Kath, when the DNA in Morgan's case was finally put into the database, it matched with an unsolved sexual assault in the city of Fairfax, which is in Northern Virginia, that had occurred four years earlier in 2005. In that case, a 26-year-old woman told police she was walking home from a grocery store about 10 p.m. when a man grabbed her from behind. He carried her to a grassy area behind a maintenance shed where he sexually assaulted her. Kath, when it came to this 26-year-old woman, no name was ever released. In later documents, I saw that the initials were used of RG. So when we refer to her in the future, we can use those initials so as not to cause confusion. It was two months after they found the Pantera t-shirt before Morgan's remains were discovered. Several pieces of clothing and jewelry items were found near her body. But her boots, leggings, underwear, and Swarovski necklace were never recovered. The state medical examiner, Dr. Kevin Whaley, performed the autopsy. The cause of death was determined to be homicidal violence of an undetermined origin. Dr. Whaley also noted that Morgan had a spiral fracture of her left upper arm and two green stick rib fractures. And Katha Green Stick, according to Google, <laughs> is where the bone cracks only on one side and it doesn't go all the way through the bone. 
a forensic anthropologist also determined that Morgan's skull had what they called an incise fracture that occurred at or near the time of death. And that type of fracture would be consistent with a hatchet or an axe strike. But it was not ruled the cause of death. And frankly, I'm not sure why. The same day Matthew was arrested in Galveston, forensic experts with the Virginia Department of Forensic Science conducted an indirect comparison between the DNA from the blood on Morgan's t-shirt with DNA obtained from items collected from the search of Matthew's apartment. My understanding of an indirect comparison is that they had a toothbrush, they had some cigar butts, but because that wasn't verified as belonging to Matthew, it was an indirect comparison. But when the Virginia Department of Forensic Science found that the indirect sample was consistent with the DNA they found on Morgan's t-shirt, that was enough for them to then get a search warrant to actually get Matthew's DNA and therefore do a direct comparison. Which is exactly what they did. Like Kathy said, pursuant to a search warrant, Virginia State Police Agent Dino Capuzzo, the lead investigator in Morgan Harrington's murder, obtained a sample of Matthew's DNA while he was in jail. Using his DNA, it was determined that the probability of the DNA profile on the Pantera t-shirt belonging to someone other than Jesse Matthew was greater than 1 in 7.2 billion, or approximately the population of the entire world at that time. Further investigation revealed that Matthew was employed by Access Taxi and was working at John Paul Jones Arena on the night of the Metallica concert. Investigators interviewed four witnesses who took a cab to the arena for the concert, and their physical description of their driver matched Matthew. One of those individuals told investigators that they saw a young blonde woman matching Morgan's description wearing a black Pantera t-shirt. She was standing just a few feet away as these witnesses exited the cab, and the reason they remembered her was because they commented on her t-shirt. In addition, Analysis of phone records associated with Matthew revealed considerable activity in the Charlottesville area prior to Morgan's disappearance. However, there was about an hour and a half of inactivity after 9.30 p.m., followed again by considerable activity for the rest of the night. Access taxi dispatchers told investigators they remembered that they had had an extremely difficult time reaching Matthew for fares during parts of that night. Jesse Matthew was charged with abduction with intent to defile, kill, and murder Morgan Harrington with malice and premeditation. Kath, it was also reported at this time that Charlottesville police had become aware of a sexual assault allegation against Matthew while he was a student at Liberty University and a member of its football team. He left Liberty soon after this allegation and enrolled at Christopher Newport University, where he also joined the football team. He left that school 10 months later under similar circumstances, although no charges were filed in either case. Just three months after Hannah's remains were found, the Albemarle County Grand Jury indicted Jesse Matthew Jr. on upgraded charges. Remember, he was originally charged with abduction with intent to defile in the case of Hannah's disappearance. The new charges mimicked the charges Matthew faced in Morgan's death, which now included murder. Just one week after Matthew was arrested in Galveston, Texas, He was indicted in Fairfax County for crimes against the previously mentioned 2005 sexual attack of R.G. This is the 26-year-old woman. And Kathy, for this crime alone, in 2015, he was sentenced to three life sentences, one per felony that the grand jury indicted him for, 
but under a geriatric release program in the county, Matthew could be eligible to be released from prison at age 60. Kathy, remind me how old he was. He was 32 when these murders happened, so he would have been probably 33 the next year. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Phew, thank you for doing that math. <laughs> Just in case you were unclear on that. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I believe he was 34 the year after, <laughs> but I'm not sure. <laughs> In January 2016, just 15 months after Hannah Graham's remains were found, there were several pretrial hearings on defense motions. One was a 10-hour evidentiary hearing on a defense motion challenging the validity of the probable cause used to obtain a search warrant. And this was the search warrant for Matthew's house. According to an article by Dean Seal in The Daily Progress, public defender Doug Ramsier alleged that Charlottesville police detectives may have misled a magistrate to get search warrants for Matthew's apartment just days after Hannah Graham went missing. In testimony during the hearing, it was revealed that authorities used a scent dog to track Hannah's movements the night she disappeared. A trained scent dog handler with a county sheriff's office testified that his dog picked up Hannah's scent in a one-and-a-half-mile trail and detected a strong scent of Hannah at a remote mulch pile. The deputy testified that the scent was indicative of fear and adrenaline. Kath, when I was reading through court records, I did not see how he quantified that. Did you hear anything about that? No, but I think the dog probably went like, row, row. <laughs> She's scared. <laughs> Kath, I'm assuming, honestly, that they probably have signals with the dog. Right. I just didn't know they ever were able to convey emotions of the person they were searching for. Yes, I get what you're saying. The scent dog was later taken to Matthew's apartment after he became a person of interest in the case. At the apartment complex, the dog showed interest in the entrance to Matthew's apartment, a nearby trash can, and the passenger side of Matthew's Chrysler. This is what prompted the search warrant for the car and the home. Public defender Ramsier argued that the findings of the search dog were inconsistent with witness accounts and video surveillance evidence, and that there was not probable cause for police to conduct those searches. After the hearing, the judge ruled that there were no instances of deliberate misstatements and reckless disregard of the truth in obtaining the warrants. And while there may have been some inconsistencies with the dog's search, there were several other arguments in the six-page affidavit that could constitute reasonable probable cause. A second hearing was held two weeks later to suppress items seized from Matthew's apartment during the search. Public defender Ramsier argued that items were taken, such as a Samsung phone and other items, that were not specified on the search warrant. He stated that case law demands that police are required to be specific about which items may be seized in a search. And he argued that the warrant Charlottesville police served was overbroad, allowing the police to seize anything they wanted, even if there was no probable cause to do so. I think this was a little bit of hyperbole on his part. It sounds like it. The public defender said the Samsung phone did not have a battery or memory chip and therefore could not have been immediately confirmed to be Matthews. In addition, they seized items such as toothbrushes and cigar butts so as to make a DNA profile of Matthew, even though there was no reason to do so at that time. 
Prosecutor Elliot Casey said that authorities were permitted discretion collecting items that could contain DNA evidence, which was absolutely relevant and germane to the investigation into Hannah's disappearance. The judge again denied the defense motion to suppress the evidence. I am sure this judge was very aware of the implications of granting a motion like this. This would have tossed so much evidence and this guy would have walked free. One month later, Commonwealth's attorney Robert N. Tracy announced that Jesse Matthew Jr. would enter a plea agreement to resolve both the Hannah Graham and Morgan Harrington abduction and murder cases. According to the terms of the plea agreement, prosecutors withdrew a capital murder charge against Matthew in exchange for pleading guilty to two charges of first-degree murder and two charges of abduction with intent to defile in the 2014 murder of Hannah Graham and the 2009 murder of Morgan Harrington. And Kath, it was actually just a couple of months prior to this that the prosecution announced that they would seek the death penalty against Matthew for his murder of Hannah Graham. Just three days later, Matthew was in court for the plea agreement. And in this hearing, additional information was made public. According to court records, on the night Hannah went missing, Matthew was going around to many of the local bars and hitting on women. His interest in the women was not necessarily shared, but he would not stop touching them or saying offensive things to them. In his first bar of the night, he hit on a woman sitting at the bar, but she told him she had a boyfriend. He kept touching her hands to the point where she sat on her hands so he could no longer touch them. My first thought was, were her legs broken? Right, <laughs> exactly. Why do you need to sit on anything? Just anyway. Walk away. Yeah, but still, oh yeah, yeah, what a nuisance. Oh, definitely. And unsurprisingly, as the night went on, Matthew became more physically aggressive and offensive. At one bar, he picked up two women at the same time by grabbing them under their derrieres and dancing around with them as they both tried to get away. Matthew finally put them down and the ladies went to a different bar to get away from him. But the bar they chose was Tempo, which is also where Matthew ended up. By this time, he was distracted by other women. Some he grabbed and squeezed their booties. And Kath, one woman had taken off her shoes because her feet hurt, and he grabbed her foot and started massaging it and making inappropriate comments. What I read is that he said to her, you know, a woman who takes care of her feet takes care of herself everywhere. <laughs> yeah, that was her response. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and everyone who just heard what I said. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Anyway, the night went on like this until he spotted the highly intoxicated Hannah Graham. You know, one of the things that was disturbing, and we've kind of talked about this a little bit, but early on in the investigation, Hannah's parents talked to the press because a lot of people were commenting on the fact about she was so drunk. And that's what a lot of them focused on. Not that she was missing, but it was more of a, well, you did this to yourself, honey, which really surprised me because in 2014, I think we all know better than that. But there was additional witnesses who talked to the police there. And I got to tell you, I was really angry about what I read. Two witnesses told investigators that they watched Matthew with Hannah. And as the pair were leaving that night, one said to the other, he's going to F her up. So one, why did you not do anything about it? Yeah. And two, why would you tell someone that? I know, like, I would be too ashamed to tell anybody that I had thoughts like that and did nothing. I can't even imagine. Yeah, I can't either. What isn't described here, except in a couple parts, was Hannah's demeanor. Did it appear to some people that she knew this guy? Did she appear to be enjoying herself at all? Or was she just a wasted mess 
where she's practically being held up. I don't know. Well, if they described her on the videotape as not being able to walk in a straight line, I can't imagine that she looked like she was okay. I know. Clearly, when she was walking down the street, we know she wasn't okay. Right, because we had a couple witnesses follow her. Right. But when she's in a bar at the end of the evening and this skeezy guy is doing his thing, what is her demeanor? Well, one of the things that happened after that, after they left the bar, is a witness told police that he saw Matthew with Hannah walking to the car. And at one point, he heard Hannah shout at him in a voice this witness described as rapid and frightened. I'm not getting in that car with you. That's terrifying. So Matthew went, took her by the arm and put her in the car. What did the witness do? Nothing. Nothing. Didn't even call police at the time. Take a picture with your cell phone of the license plate. Do something. Here's the thing. Call police departments, call dispatch, let them know, give license plates. They would rather you called and were wrong than did nothing. 100%. Especially in a college town. Anything that is telling you instinctively that if this were your sister, you would not want this happening, you pick up a phone. At the conclusion of the plea hearing, the judge sentenced Matthew to four consecutive life sentences. And under the plea agreement, there is no possibility of parole. It also means he won't qualify for Fairfax County's geriatric release program. Both the Graham and the Harrington families supported the deal and were grateful that they would not have to go through a trial. Hannah's father, John Graham, said their overriding priority was that Matthew would never be able again to inflict his depravity on young women. Matthew's deeds showed that he is far too dangerous ever to be allowed to be free. Hannah's mother, Susan Graham, said in her victim impact statement that Matthew was a serial rapist and murderer hiding in plain sight, and she called Hannah a heroine for helping to apprehend Matthew, which is absolutely true, and what a high price to pay to do that. Oh, that's very true. Morgan Harrington's mother, Gil Harrington, thanked the law enforcement community who removed Matthew from the streets. She said, you all were determined to and resolute to find a top tier predator that hunted in this community. A spokesman for Jesse Matthews' family apologized to the Harrington and Graham families in a statement read outside the courthouse. The Reverend Louis Carr said, we know that there is nothing that we can do to erase what Jesse has done, but we pray that you will find in your hearts to someday forgive our loved one. Jesse Matthew Jr. is now 41 years old and serving his sentence at the Red Onion State Prison, which I didn't realize they had naming rights for prisons. (laughs) Not to be confused with the Red Onion Bar. (laughs) Exactly. Which is a supermax prison in southwest Virginia. Most recently, in July 2021, a dozen anonymous women filed a lawsuit against Liberty University, the first college Matthew attended. The suit accused the university of enabling on-campus rapes claiming the university not only failed to help them after they reported sexual assaults or sexual misconduct, but also made the college more dangerous through its responses or lack thereof. One of the lawsuit's claims was from a plaintiff who said she was attacked when she was 15 while attending a summer camp offered at Liberty University. When the plaintiff contacted campus police, She was told she would be criminally charged with filing a false police report if she did not withdraw her assault claim. According to the lawsuit, the plaintiff later learned the attacker was Jesse Matthew Jr. Ten months after the lawsuit was filed, it was settled. However, the details of the settlement were not made public. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy the story as much as we enjoyed telling it. (laughs) Rate us, 
review us Mm -hmm. and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Only five stars are allowed. Remember that. (laughs) 